London, Ontario, known as one of the greenest and most resilient cities in Canada. Wait, what? Okay, maybe it isn't yet. That's the London Environmental Network's vision for our city. This podcast asks how close we are to realizing that vision. This is a tour of sustainability in London. I'm Molly Mixa. I'll be your tour guide. I am really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. This is part two of our look at local food growth and consumption in London. I'll be speaking with Dr. Gabor Sass and really getting into the ways that individuals and communities are growing and can grow more food ourselves. We'll be talking about the City of London's Urban Agriculture Strategy, which is a vital document in terms of increasing food production within urban boundaries. And we'll be talking about gardening and about some exciting projects and ideas that are ready to bear fruit, and about some areas of untapped potential. So, the radical dream goal that I've been considering for local food in London is for the city to be food self-sufficient. In the last episode, we talked about some initiatives happening on a fairly large scale, with organizations like the London Food Bank, the Forest City Workers Co-op, and Urban Roots London. My talk with Gabor will offer further insight into ways Londoners can become more self-sufficient on a small scale. I met Dr. Sass in his yard, overlooking his family garden, in November 2020. Gabor is an assistant professor at Western University, where he teaches courses in environment and sustainability, as well as in the Department of Geography. But he does a lot more. My name is Gabor Sass. My passion work is related to urban sustainability, working with the community on on various issues. So I've done a lot of work related to pollinator health, urban agriculture, and resilient cities. That's in a nutshell of what I'm passionate about are these three main things. And related to that, I've been involved with organizing conferences when I was sitting on the advisor committee on the environment along with uh, some of the other advisory committees, as well as the London Public Library and City of London. We put on these these conferences. In 2017, it was the Urban Act Conference, and two years later, it was the Resilient Cities Conference. And a few years prior was the Pollinator Health mini-conference. And then since then, um, I've also been community activator, connector. And where that has led me is to get projects off the ground, such as the Wood Street Park Food Forest, the West Lines Park Food Forest, Pollinator Pathways Project, Friends of Urban Agriculture London. So that's a lot <laughs> I have, of stuff. I have my hands in a lot of different <laughs> things. Yeah. You were also the original environmentalist in residence with the library? Yeah. Uh, in 2019, I was really honored to be asked to, to hold this, I guess, inaugural position with the library. Which I think is a is a great idea, and mm-hmm. I think they're following up with it. With uh, every year, there'll be a different environmentalist in residence. So, what I did that year was to hold a series of workshops that I called "Small Steps to Sustainability," and I talked about urban agriculture. I talked about waste, how how we cut down on waste. Talked about water conservation. I talked about energy. There was yeah. one at the Landon Library that I went to. Oh, yeah. Was that the one on urban agriculture? I think it was, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fun. I love to speak to really a- any crowd. 
By the way, I'm not an expert in <laughs> in urban agriculture and in growing food. Like, <laughs> I, I think I'm more on the green thumb end of the spectrum. So, you know, when I grow things, they, they I get a good yield. Right. <laughs> but I'm not an expert. Like, there's some people who've been doing this for many decades and uh, really know their stuff. Right. It's like generational knowledge. <laughs> like generational too. knowledge, yeah, and, and indigenous knowledge. And, well, immigrants coming from around the world, they bring a whole other host of skills and knowledge about growing many different crops that mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily grow here. Right, but maybe they would. <laughs> but maybe they would, yeah. Uh, so th I think that's one area where we can open up and do more is to bring in these new voices, these new ideas, new people into the conversation about urban agriculture. I was curious about who actually is participating in urban agriculture in London and in Canada, by which I mean the cultural demographics of gardeners. I remember the impressive gardens of Italian and Portuguese neighborhoods from when I lived in Toronto, for example. I didn't find much on this statistically. One article from the Public Policy Forum looked at an urban farm in Halifax called Common Roots. The article talks about the importance of familiar foods, or what it calls cultural food security, about Bhutanese refugees growing foods that are staples in many African countries, but which are not commonly available in Halifax. Community gardens and neighborhood projects offer opportunities for gardeners and farmers from all over the world to share knowledge, and there's a lot of value in that. I asked Gabor about his own home garden. Yeah, so I guess this was my kind of entrance into the world or the realm of urban agriculture back in 2002 when as students we bought this rundown house with a wide open yard with just grass in it. The following year my dad comes up to me and we're from Hungary where he grew up in a small town, small village with, with big gardens. And he says, Gabor, you need to have a small vegetable patch. <laughs> so I was like, okay, can you help me? And so my dad helped me to, to get started with a, a really small vegetable patch in, in the middle of the garden. And then over the years, so I guess the last 17 years, I've been adding to it, modifying it, as I've learned about permaculture and food forests. Uh, and lately, I've uh, transformed the vegetable growing areas into raised bed gardens. And it's obviously really productive. Yeah, it's been super productive. The, these raised beds, for one, they forced me to stay within the, the bounds of the raised bed. I couldn't, couldn't put uh, over plant like I've, I've done before. <laughs> uh, and this way, I'm never stepping on the soil. So it's not compacted like mm. in some other years. It's a lot easier to add water, a lot easier to add compost, to do the weeding, to do the watering. Oh, and the other thing I should add is that it's a lot easier to add vertical growing areas. Like you, you can see some of those mm. wire mesh that I've added. So mm -hmm. you can grow beans onto it. Like trellises, would you call yeah, them? Yeah, or? trellis. Yeah, exactly. And then all ar around the vegetable and growing areas, so these raised bed gardens, are the fruit trees, which I call uh, the edible forest garden. Right. With uh, fruit bushes like raspberries, and then fruit trees uh, like apple, pear, plums, and also some nut trees like hazelnut. And until this year, we, we had a, a chestnut, but unfortunately it died out for whatever reason. According to Statistics Canada, in 2017, so pre-pandemic, 57% of Canadian households did some kind of gardening for personal use. Rates were highest for those living in single detached homes, 
But even in high-rise apartment buildings, nearly 30% of Canadians were growing produce, herbs, or flowers, many on balconies. The National Post reported that in the 2020 pandemic year, 51% of Canadians grew at least one type of fruit or vegetable. Nearly one in five of those were growing their own food for the first time. If we want to compare cities, 2013 census data has Peterborough being the most gardening-friendly city in Canada, with 77% of households gardening. London was then ranked 19th out of 33 Canadian cities, with 58% of us being gardeners. I asked Gabor for his thoughts on London as a green and resilient food city. Well, first about the bigger picture, I'm actually not that knowledgeable on the Canadian city's context. In southern Ontario, I do know about some of the things going on in Guelph and Toronto and Hamilton. So I would put London probably in the middle of the pack, maybe closer to the, to the leading edge. Hmm. I think London has been on an upswing lately since, since about 2017 when, um, when we hosted the Urban Agriculture Conference. I think that was one big push, got, got a lot of people excited and talking to each other. And then next to that is the city's push to, well, the city's push by, but it actually, it was coming from the grassroots, from the community, but the, the city's effort to get the Urban Act strategy going. So I think that has, that has really helped put urban agriculture front and center. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, going back a little bit, I, I do want to honor and, and pay respect to all the people who've gone uh, and, and worked on this in, in earlier waves. So I know in 2000, there was the city farming initiative. So that was an earlier wave of people getting involved in urban agriculture. And, and then that kind of petered out. You know, as with, with any movement or with any work, it comes in waves, right? So yeah. there's that cresting of the wave. And I, I feel like we, we are still on the upswing in this current wave, which is really great to see. I was looking over the urban agriculture strategy, and that was officialized November 2017. Do you think it's it's having a big impact? Is it the suggestions and guidance is being followed by the city? Well, it's uh, the way it's been set up, the Urban Act strategy, is it doesn't just put the onus on the city to do things. It's the city and the community mm-hmm. and the two working together. And so that's, that's how it's been designed. And you can read through it and see that it's organized into five different sections. There's the growing, there's processing, distribution, education. Um, I think there's one on food, on food loss. Yeah. And, and in each of those major categories, there are tasks that have been set out and responsibilities kind of divvied up between those those various actors and so who should be pushing for this who's responsible for this right um so it's saying here just looking at it actually so whether community leads community partners with the city city enables the community or the city leads yeah So. so one area where the city should lead and needs to lead is the bylaws right so there are some bylaws that keeping some of this work constrained. Mm-hmm. And so one was, and, and this is so this is a positive from the city. Those of us who are doing urban agriculture related work who wanted to sell the food that produced were not able to do so. So now there's a new bylaw that kind of opened that up. Not fully, because I think there's still a bit more work to be done. But now households can actually sell from the end of their driveway. So it's, it's like a, not a garage sale, but a food sale 
right. right? That you can do. And anyone can do that. And anyone. O- although you should probably ask someone from the city to. <laughs> so, to confirm, London City bylaws as of 2020 allow residents to sell produce grown on their properties up to 20 times per year. Garage sales, by comparison, are only allowed twice per year. Sales from community gardens are still not allowed because community garden guidelines state that it is prohibited to sell produce or flowers from the garden. However, they may be traded or exchanged with other gardeners. Finally, bylaws used to restrict urban farms like Urban Roots London, which we talked about in the last episode, from selling produce on site. Due to the recommendations of the Urban Agriculture Strategy, as of November 2019, permitted uses of urban reserve zones in London, including Urban Roots London, have been changed to include farm gate sales. That is to say, they can sell produce directly from the farm. And Urban Roots is really a first. It's like a larger operation farm it's, within the city it's a f- vegetable it's, farm uh, it's pro- it's not the first farm because the city farming project was you know it, it did operate as a farm okay uh, at the outskirts of the city somewhere between 2007 and 2012 something like that uh, rose white was the person who led that effort along with uh, robin harvey i think was involved and bill smith so i can't really say whether urban roots is the first one or not but it, it's definitely in this new wave of excitement about urban agriculture, they are definitely leading the way mm-hmm. uh, as, as an urban farm. There are now others. Uh, I'm part of one of these groups who would like to create another urban farm here in Cavendish Park. So that would go on public land. Mm. So obviously the city of London would be involved and we'd be creating what we call a, a food hub. So an area where we're growing food and vegetables in raised beds, mm-hmm. some of it covered and under showing hoop houses. And the focus would be on training and education. But then obviously the food coming out of there would be sold or distributed to the food bank and other people in, in need. Huh. Wow. That's great. So that's a project that's underway right now. That, that's, yeah, that's been in the works for a few years now. And we are fairly close to receiving the final green light. We've been working with the City of London on it. The, the major, I guess, uh, organization pushing it is Hutton House and uh, also the Kensington Village Association. Okay. So, so it would go into this neighborhood where I live, which is right. called Kensington Village. Right. Now, Hutton House... Their, their main thing is they work with people with disabilities? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so that... That's part of the project? Yeah. The way we're pitching it is that this farm would be open to people with all abilities. And I think initially it would be run by Hutton House and they would bring in people interested in, in learning skills and, you know, how to grow food, right? And that would allow those people to get employment, in maybe the landscaping industry or other greenhouses at the edge of town. Or they can take that knowledge into their own backyards if they have access to land mm-hmm. and just be able to grow their own food. But eventually, I see this food hub as one that invites in the entire community. So the smaller, immediate community of Kensington Village, but then the wider London community, anyone who's interested in learning picking up skills related to urban agriculture, they would be able to take a one-day workshop or a few-hour workshop on 
you know, how do you start a raised bed garden, for example. And then it could branch out into things like processing the food. And I'd love it if this center also became a, a place where we celebrated community together and uh, with food and pizza, <laughs> pizza making on Friday nights and, and things like that. Right. Wow, that's so exciting. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm really excited about this project. Well, I look forward to hearing how that comes into being. Gabor is continuing to work on the Cavendish Farm Project, which is currently being called the PATCH Project, where PATCH stands for People, Agriculture, Training, Community, and Hospitality. He and his group have been applying for funding grants and are waiting on final approval from the city, so stay tuned. We've been talking about what measures are being taken that will move the city forward, and you know, you've mentioned a lot. Are there any others? Okay, so let, let me just complete um, my my thoughts on the Urban Act oh, strategy. Yeah. So the Urban Act strategy has been passed. There is a steering committee that was struck by the City of London. So it reports to the council there. And it's mostly people from the community representing various organizations like Friends of Urban Agriculture London, the various farmers markets, Western Fair Association. And what they're doing is helping the city and the community to implement the various measures and the various plans that have been set out in the Urban Act strategy. So that's great. Now, this year, what the steering committee focused on is to prepare the a guide to urban agriculture. Mm. And they actually outsourced that work to my consulting class. So I teach the <laughs> Master's in Environment and Sustainability, a course called uh, Interdisciplinary Consulting Project course. And one of the teams was hired by the steering committee to put together this guide. And now it's being distributed. So I think that that's going to be a really good resource for the London community as a whole to use. Mm. Gabor's class was able to finish the Guide to Urban Agriculture, which should be released very soon. Keep an eye on the show notes for a link. Now, the, the other thing that's been happening that I think is really positive is the, the Western Fair Association is kind of recalibrating their work and they started something called the the grove which is a agribusiness incubator so we know that through the fairs western fair has been really turned towards the agriculture community but the one that's surrounding london right mm -hmm. so it's really the agriculture community that's growing food at, on a big scale right and now with this new initiative is opening up this agribusiness incubator, which will be open for still big business, but they're also turning now towards the London community because mm. they're seeing this work in urban agriculture and in general local food systems. So because, you know, there's growing chefs who are not necessarily growing food, but they're working with students and putting together really healthy meals for schools, right? So growing chefs will be one of the first tenants in the Grove. And the, the Middlesex London Food Policy Council is also moving into that building. And then there's some other businesses that are starting. So there are startup businesses that are in the local food system space. So not necessarily growing food. Some of them, I think, will be doing that. But just focusing on local food systems, work in education or selling food, processing food. Mm -hmm. So I think the Grove will be a really positive thing for th those of us who are concerned about local food sustainability. Amazing. Do you happen to know the timeline at all on that? 
It's been launched and they are now accepting tenants. Okay, so they have yeah. Growing Chefs maybe is there Growing now. Chef is there now. The Food Policy Council, Life Fit. I don't know what, what they do exactly. <laughs> and, and I think the Warmery, that's, that's the one. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, I, I, I've come across it. It's an in-house project of the Western Fair District. Dan Lismore is the one who's a project manager there. And uh, and he's been instrumental Which in getting be that large scale worm composting operation. Yeah, uh, worm comp- composting. So there's tons happening basically. Yeah. Live Fit Foods, which Gabor mentioned, is a food delivery service bringing healthy prepared meals to communities across Ontario. As of March 2021, the Grove is hosting them, as well as six other operations, some of which Gabor mentioned, and they still have spaces for lease. Conversely, where would you say we're still falling short as a city in terms of supporting urban agriculture, supporting sustainable food systems? So and the, the negative on the Urban Act strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really disappointed that this is how it happened because the community worked so hard with the city to get kind of the, the best ideas put on down on paper and included in the urban agriculture strategy. And one of the top things that the community wanted was a pilot project on backyard hens. And everything was going great at the standing committee level. It passed, no problem. So again, what passed was that there was a whole section on a potential pilot project for backyard hens. So it wasn't even that London will do a pilot hen project, a backyard hen project. It was just the possibility that this should be looked at. So allowing citizens to raise their own chickens. Something which is happening in many Uh, other municipalities. Many, Guelph, Toronto, and further afield, Edmonton allows it. And then across the world, there are a lot of cities, right? Yeah. Uh, That that allow not just hens, but other small animals to be raised in the city. So it it was not maybe not a cornerstone, but it was definitely one aspect of the strategy is to look at the possibility of allowing hens and then maybe later on other smaller animals. But it was just focused, initially it was just focused on backyard hens. And so when it got to council, one councillor after another stood up how, you know, this is not appropriate for London. We need to take it out. And much to the dismay of all of us who worked so hard on this document along with city staff, it was voted down. So every single word, sentence that related to backyard hens had to be struck, had to be taken out. So if there's anything missing in in urban agriculture and in in our local food system is discussion on how we bring back small animals. Mm -hmm. Right now, you can raise pigeons, for example. So that's allowed. You can raise bees, provided that you work within the provincial guidelines in a small urban lot it's hard to meet those guidelines or those constraints because i think they set out something like you have to be 30 meters away from the nearest property line so most of us don't have a big enough property yeah Uh, but it's still it is bees are allowed so that's a small animal i think backyard hens make a lot of sense i know that many other cities allow small goats Hmm. there are pygmy goats who that i think would fit into any small backyard And, you know, I think that's a good start. (laughs) Yeah. And generally speaking, just for people that don't know, 
most of the programs, at least in Ontario or Canada, that have backyard hens, it's not a meat-producing issue. So there's no slaughtering of birds in someone's backyard, but there would be egg producers. They would be potentially helping in your garden, eating grubs, and connecting with people, and then providing roughly an egg a day, I think, most hens. And usually it's only hens. The roosters wouldn't be allowed, and there would be a set number. I don't think there's any over 10 yeah, there, I mean, there's no issues with, with that. And I think no one would have said that, you know, you can have as many as you want and without any other constraints. So just like, you know, pet owner, you know, thinks about many different aspects of hosting an animal, right? Like a, a pet. So the same kind of issue would arise with raising backyard hens, looking right. after them, making sure everything is clean. And so absolutely, there would have to be certification involved because a lot of us don't have that knowledge. And I think that would be a reasonable ask by a municipality is that mm-hmm. you have to go through some type of uh, training and then certification so that you're keeping these birds healthy and protecting them from predators. Because, okay, so if, if we don't do this, then what happens is that, and it's already happening, people are doing it nonetheless, right? Covertly. And covertly, right? <laughs> <laughs> And so I think it's better to bring things into the light. London City Council has taken a conservative stance on backyard hens. The city of Guelph has allowed urban chickens since 1985, Kingston since 2011, Kitchener since 2016. Even Toronto started a backyard hens pilot project in 2018. So why not here? Maybe there was a, a fear of many people involved that these birds would overtake the city. They would take us back to an earlier age that we think we've already passed, you know, that agrarian life where London once was and is coming from, but now we're going to the stars and we're going to use biotech, right? Like growing everything at the big scale. So then the question is, why would we want to grow or raise chickens in our backyards when... That's that's a work for the food industry. Right. So it sort of seems like there's a push and pull. On the one hand, especially now and in the pandemic, people are gardening more. They're connecting more with homesteading activities, really, like baking bread, making a garden when they haven't before. And then at the same time, there's an older notion of this disconnect of, of we're not farmers now. We're in the city we don't do that work. So would you see it sort of as a, a push-pull right now? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I sense that attitude from many people. You know, the city London staff, yes, but even in the community, yeah, many people think that growing food does not belong in the city and they don't want to see corn stalks in my front yard because it's not, not an appropriate image in their mind. So it's something that we've done in the past, but now we're doing it differently and we need to move on from that past. So I I see that attitude. Mm -hmm. And Uh, I guess what would your response be to those people or or that attitude? Well, I mean, I take a much more holistic way of looking at things and a lot more ecological. And, you know, we are biological beings. We eat. And at the same time, we live in a society that has really decimated nature. You know, we've cut down, I don't know, 95% of the forest of Ontario. We've uh, drained similarly really high percentage of wetlands. So nature has really been pushed to the edge. So what better way to bring back that knowledge that we're connected to nature? Because we are, uh, even if we push everything, all of these activities of growing food, we push outside of the city. 
the truth is that we are still dependent on food that's being produced still with food crops being in, in the soil and animals that are still breathing the oxygen of the air and drinking the water. So the connections are still there, but they've been really pushed outside of our view. And I think when we bring this production back, it ties us back into the, the cycle of nature. We see where our food is coming from. And I would add that it improves the health of food that's coming, the quality of the food that's coming out of a, of a backyard garden where you can pick your tomato and eat it the same day. You know, it's mm -hmm. a much, much higher level than anything that you can buy in the grocery store. I would say, and it's healthy, but I, I would also connect it to mental health, especially, you know, going through a pandemic, dealing with the looming crisis of climate change. And by looming, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's here, it's happening, and people are stressed out about it. And if you have... A tomato plant, even one tomato plant in your backyard, and you can go and say, well, you know, I made this happen. I nurtured this plant. I think there's comfort in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the garden that we've created here, you know, provides so much more than just the food itself. It's tying us back into those natural cycles. It gives uh, a different aesthetic. And to me, a garden like this a vegetable garden, a forest garden, a pollinator garden. It brings so much beauty into this world, into a community. And that's been the overwhelming response from our neighbors is that this is, you know, it's a beautiful garden, that it's a beautiful place to, to walk by. Regarding gardening and mental health, one paper titled Gardening is Beneficial for Health, a Meta-Analysis, which was published in 2017, looked at 22 case studies related to gardening from around the world. To quote, there is increasing awareness among researchers and health practitioners of the potential health benefits derived from gardening activities. Indeed, previous studies have shown that gardening increases individuals' life satisfaction, vigor, psychological well-being, positive affects, sense of community, and cognitive function. Reductions in stress, anger, fatigue, and depression and anxiety symptoms have also been documented. In consequence, engagement with gardening has increasingly been recognized as not only a cost-effective health intervention, but also a treatment or occupational therapy for those with psychological health issues, so-called horticultural therapy, unquote. And then, of course, there are the environmental benefits. So I'm thinking about how our household, how we can move towards a net zero lifestyle, and we've been implementing various technologies that save energy and that also reduce our carbon footprint. And when you have a garden where you're growing lots of different trees, right? And in our case, they are fruit trees, but they are sequestering carbon. So when you grow a garden with lots of woody vegetation, so trees and shrubs, they're actually taking up carbon. Mm -hmm. So it helps you in realizing those goals of reducing carbon, where you are putting the carbon into the soil, into that vegetation. So urban agriculture helps us tick off so many of those boxes. It brings people together. It helps us with our mental health, as we just said. It helps with our physical health by the organic and totally fresh food that's coming out of those gardens. It helps with climate by 
allowing us to put more carbon into the soil. So we're partly solving the climate crisis. We can help with food security, with mental health, with bringing people together. Providing livelihoods too. And providing livelihoods, yeah. I mean, I think that that is going to be kind of the next phase where I see this going, where enterprising uh, individuals, and I, I know a few, who are now thinking about this as, as a livelihood, as a business. There's something called spin farming. And spin farming, it's an acronym. But essentially, this urban agriculturist or urban farmer signs up people with backyards who are willing to lease that garden to this enterprising farmer mm -hmm. who then grows food in those backyards. Either they pay a fee for using that garden or just they give over part of the food that they produce. Mm -hmm. But essentially, they have multiple gardens in which they grow food. And in an urban area, you can probably get to market quicker. You can start growing things earlier than outside of the city because of the, the urban heat island effect. So I've heard from other cities where this type of farming has been really successful. Amazing. I knew a florist in Toronto who does that, but she's growing flower gardens. Wow. And then she's harvesting flowers yes. from these people's gardens so they can enjoy them, but also she's taking some of them and then sells them to her clients. Right. So Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I think that's, um, you know, that's part of the future. And then the other, and tying it back to your question about, you know, what's, what's still missing is access to land. You know, there are a lot of us who don't have a backyard, don't have access to land. So I think the, the city needs to keep on working on this issue. Because that's they an are, equality issue too. It's an equ yeah, exactly. You know, they have a really successful community garden program. It's oversubscribed. There's always long waiting lists. And so I think they really need to be looking around all the public lands available where else can we allow the public to come in mm -hmm. and start a garden or start an urban farm? Because mm -hmm. I think that would be a, a great use of, of urban space, of uh, open public space. So coming back to uh, my project here in Cavendish Park, the farm would go into a storage yard that apparently the city will no longer need. So it's fenced in and it's sitting on top of a landfill which might sound like maybe not the best place to do an urban farm, but if you put everything into raised beds and you bring in your own soil, then I think it does make sense. A working landfill or a No, it's not a... No, 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 it's, yeah. <laughs> this has been capped for over 70 years now. 70 years. Okay, yeah. so this is well put to bed, this landfill, but it's also tricky land to make use of in a exactly. way. Exactly, yeah. So that's one big issue um, is, is access to land. I love the idea of foodscaping, which is, I guess, what I'm trying to do is to even move on to the boulevard, mm -hmm. you know, that space that we don't technically own, mm -hmm. but most people only have a lawn on it, right? Yeah. So why not use that, put that to good use? You could grow flowers, you could grow some fruits or vegetables. You know, it's important to be cognizant of sight lines and not overdoing it. Mm -hmm. But I think this general concept of foodscaping private and public lands. And I think this only works with the involvement of the community. So I don't think the city needs to lead this work, but I think they need to allow this work to happen. Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in putting in food forests into their neighborhood park, if they are interested in growing food in their front yards and in their boulevards, 
that that's something that the city not just allows, but it kind of encourages. So we haven't really spoken about education and raising awareness, but I think that's also a really important aspect of moving forward. For sure, for sure. And I think too, I mean, it brings to my mind that I think London is a really, like it's a neighborhood city. People know their neighbors and they care about their neighbors as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know there are people in the city who have chickens and they talk to their neighbors and the neighbors are okay with that and they might give them an egg every now and then. Yeah, the, the, what is it called? The egg bribe? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think likewise with, you know, if you want to have a lush garden going out right up to your sidewalk or on that boulevard space, people don't want to cause problems. And I think as the culture sort of is changing a little bit, that people are not only more tolerant of that, but starting to embrace that and embrace the gardens that they can see. And, oh, this neighbor's got big, beautiful tomato plants. That's a nice thing, not an eyesore. I don't know if you... Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I totally agree. And as I said earlier, in our family, we received overwhelmingly positive feedback from the community mm -hmm. on, on the work that I've been doing here. And in fact, my community work started because of those conversations. You know, we live on a corner a lot. So that means that our yard is totally public facing. So there's no backyard. It's a side yard. So whenever I'm outside and gardening, I see my neighbors. Right. And that's how I started meeting my neighbors. And, you know, they, they would come and say, hey, I like what you're doing there. What is that plant? And then we started talking about the garden. And that kind of spilled out into the community. And that's how we have the Wood Street Park Food Forest. We have a beautiful shared space that the community loves to hang out in, where we have all sorts of events, harvest parties that you've been to, and mm -hmm. where we make cider together, we eat together. So, yeah, this idea of sharing the things that you're growing, and I've definitely been encouraging folks who pass by and who see some fruit hanging off a tree that they should absolutely pick it. Mm. You know, don't don't pick it clean, but help right. yourself. I call the garden outside of the fence our little community garden that it's open to anyone to pick. Mm. And I've I've definitely encouraged all passersby to do that. So we're sharing food, we're sharing ideas, and as you say, London is you know, is a really friendly town with a, a slower pace of life, and we have some really amazing neighborhoods where you see this friendly neighborliness. And now I'm seeing it in the realm of urban agriculture, where people are learning from each other and passing on seeds or that knowledge, mm -hmm. right, of how to grow various vegetables. Mm -hmm. And it's cross-generational too. Yeah, it was amazing when we had our planting day, the, the Wood Street Park Food Forest. We had up to 75 people, it turned out. And it was the young and the old. And there were recent immigrants who showed up. And it turned out that they spoke French. And there are French-speaking members of this community. And they, they connected over that. So it is, yeah, it, it's crossing generations. It's crossing cultures. And I think that's what we need to embrace is, is that, you know, we can grow different types of food. People like to eat different types of things. There's different techniques mm -hmm. that we can learn from that. And we can learn about the heirloom tomatoes from folks who maybe have grown it for many decades, right? And then they can share those seeds and we pass it on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so exciting. It, it's, yeah, really exciting work. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great place to stop and so hopeful and there's so much potential and so much happening so thank you very much 
You're welcome. <laughs> We're both freezing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless there's anything else that no. you need to add. Nope, uh, we're good? No, I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Many thanks to Dr. Gabor Sass for that great chat and for all of his work. I hope this talk will inspire you to get out in the garden this year. Whether your garden is a community garden plot, a backyard haven, or simply a tomato plant on your balcony. If you're able to go further, consider starting a new initiative in your neighborhood a food forest, a new community garden, or maybe a neighborhood canning club. If you see the value in urban agriculture, tell your city councilor that you appreciate the changes that have been made and that you'd like to keep the momentum going. London is on fertile ground for food growth. Be a part of it. It's good for you. London, Ontario, one of Canada's greenest cities, is a production of the London Environmental Network. I'd like to thank Nicole, Sarah, Leah, and Skylar from the London Environmental Network for their help with this episode. Theme music, courtesy of archesaudio.com. Research and editing by me, Molly Mixer.